Hello and welcome to the Talking Mortality podcast. Here we will be exploring some of the difficulties and challenges in the practice of modern medicine with a particular focus on the care of patients who are nearing the end of life. My name is Dr. Calvin Lightbody. I'm an emergency medicine consultant working in A&E in the United Kingdom National Health Service. This episode of Talking Mortality is called Addressing the Death Taboo. We're going to be looking at what the death taboo is, how it came about, and then looking at some ways that we can perhaps start to break down this taboo. I am joined for this discussion by my friend and colleague, Professor Robin Taylor. Robin is a consultant in respiratory medicine with 40 years of healthcare experience here in the United Kingdom and also in New Zealand. He has spent several years working to improve the care of patients with critical illness who might be approaching the end of life. Robin, it's a pleasure to be discussing this subject with you this morning. How are you today? Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Robin, uh, the subject, talking mortality, why do you think it's, uh, it's important to, to talk about this and, and to take this subject on? Well, I think, I think the choice, you cho- your choice of title for the podcast, Talking Mortality, is really helpful. At its simplest, you would say, we don't talk about mortality. Mm-hmm. In professional terms, we have morbidity and mortality. In statistical terms, we have mortality rates for countries or cities Mm -hmm. or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. But the mortality issue, the death issue, to be honest, there's a taboo has surrounded it right through the last 50, 60, 70 years. Mm -hmm. And that has a major and negative impact on the way we deliver healthcare and the way that people experience healthcare. That's right, that's right. So we want to explore that death taboo a bit more, and uh, you mentioned that it's, it's something that we don't talk about much in society. Is that, is that just because people are uncomfortable or just don't want to talk about it? Well, there is a deep discomfort. I mean, intrinsic to every biological species, intrinsic to us as human beings, we have a survival instinct. And the survival instinct kicks in in a myriad of ways how we feed ourselves, how we look after our children, how we uh, deal with health and safety issues. Um, But in general, during the 20th century, society's uh, handling of this issue became increasingly to push it to the side and deny it. Mm -hmm. And going into denial is very common, but uh, it's not just important when it's happening to an individual, it's happening really has been happening across our society yeah, yeah. and we did need to recognise that. So it's a, it's a relatively new thing then, would you say? There wasn't a death taboo you know, a few hundred years ago. Well, I think there's always been the, the survival instinct and I think there's always been this consciousness and awareness in human societies that dealing with the issue of mortality is really important. But my personal hypothesis is that after the First World War, when... You know, nearly a million young men, particularly from in the United Kingdom, were sacrificed in that in the carnage of Belgium and northern France. In the aftermath of that, I think there was such horror and such a universal psychological trauma that handling it became difficult. And then, of course, there was another world war when fifty million people died. And in the aftermath of that. We, we, uh, we just couldn't cope with talking about death all the time. We had mm-hmm. to 
push it to the side mm. deliberately as a mechanism for just our psychological health mm-hmm. as a community. Yes. So that, that shock to the whole society with, with so many young people dying then? Yes, I can't prove that. But mm-hmm. if you look at the trends over the 100 years of the 20th century, I think that's a mm-hmm. very important factor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So to come up to the present day... Yeah. Why do you think it's so difficult for us to talk about death and dying? And why, doesn't, why don't we do this in a more healthy manner? Well, maybe at this point I'll introduce the role that medicine has had. If you go back to the 1960s and the 1970s in particular, when uh, after the NHS was established in uh, 1948, there was a pause for a while. And then there was resourcing into not only hospitals, um, research and so on, but also as a consequence of all these things, the technical expertise grew, the complexity grew, but there also was within our mindset as a community the idea that medicine is there to fix it. And the fix-it mentality is embedded deeply in all the expressions of healthcare that we currently fund and support. The problem with fix-it is that it always runs out of steam eventually because everybody's mortal. But it creates this illusion, and it's the illusion that many, many people hold on to, even although at the end of the day it's punctured by death, Mm-hmm. Death overtakes everybody's life, yes. but yes. but with these two these two themes and the, the the power of medicine to shape the way we think about death has been uh, really unprecedented in human culture. So so that 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 precedent that uh, fix it approach has led to society believing that death can be postponed. Death death is can be defeated. Well, we see that's. I mean, look at the facts on the ground. Uh, you work in emergency medicine and you're confronted with this even more so than I am. And frankly, there's hardly anybody, unless they're dead on arrival, there's hardly anybody who comes into your department whom by some mechanism or another you cannot keep alive for half an hour or two hours or three hours. That's right. So you you try it. So the fix-it, the fix-it mentality, the curative medical model is preeminent in the way that you run or you have run mm-hmm. acute services at, in the emergency department. That's right. And, yeah. and frankly, whenever you get a success, you cheer and you go home with your tail wagging and you think, what a good day it was today. We seized that man from the jaws of death and, and he gave mm-hmm. me a bottle of wine you know, a week later <laughs> as, a, as a present yeah. in, in, with great thankfulness. Yeah, the, the point of the matter is that you, you may have seized one, but him, for every one that you have a a success with, there are still nine or ten for whom success of that nature, I mean survival. Yes, I guess doctors have this this fear that, that dying is somehow a failure, that we, we haven't succeeded. But society has that fear as well. What do you think is it that people, individuals, fear when it comes to thinking about their own mortality and about dying? Mm. That's actually quite a deep existential mm-hmm. question. Every human being, and it's a trait of being human, has the capacity to anticipate the future. You know, we don't just live in the present, like a cow grazing in a field. We have a future, we have a past. And if we extend our minds into the future, what is my significance going to be mm-hmm. in the future? And the fact of mortality poses a deep threat to my significance mm-hmm. as a human being. And 
it's very hard for us to contemplate either life after death or extinction. It doesn't, doesn't actually matter what element of these or which of these two options you actually uh, entertain within your thinking. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. very, very difficult. And therefore, we shrink from the idea of extinction. Uh, we also shrink from the process of dying. Yeah, and dying most itself. people would say, mm, it's, I'm, I'm not scared of death. I'm, I, can, I can cope with being dead, but I can't cope with getting yeah, there. Yes, that's something I hear a lot. Yeah. And we hear a lot of that. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I, I think there's both. I don't know about you, but I've noticed that often you get patients who are quite comfortable in the, their terminal illness until mm-hmm. just 12, 24, 48 hours before mm-hmm. they, yes. they right. pass away. And you have this agitation, and right. often it's interpreted as patients in pain or there's something physical that's mm-hmm. affecting their behaviours. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure. Is that more psychological element? Well, there, psychological, too? spiritual, uh, I think the... I think the threat of extinction still exists. It rises to the surface mm-hmm. and is apparent in circumstances such as, as I've just described. Yeah. So it's not just the, the dying process I've described. It's fear of, of, of ceasing to exist altogether. And I guess it's not just individual people who have a fear. We, we maybe fear about our loved ones. We, we have fears uh, you know, as a family, perhaps, when it comes to caring for somebody towards the end of life. What, what fears do you think uh, families and loved ones have at this time? Well, there's a sense in which the way an individual has this innate, intuitive fear of extinction, so do um, family members. The bonds between a husband and a wife or between a parent and a child or a child and their parent are equally threatened. And so you have families who fret and become agitated about the prospect the prospect of mortality for their mum or their dad. Uh, and that's completely understandable. But what we've done in medicine is we've provided a sort of escape route from actually processing that in a healthy manner. Um, because you know and I know there are families who say we want everything done. That's right. Yeah. And they, they project their anxiety onto you and onto me as you know and I know, doing everything possible, doing what we can do is not always what we should be yes, doing. Yes. And so you actually can inadvertently compound the anxieties and the fears because you raise expectations or you um, you almost nurture the expectations yes, saying, well, yes, yeah. this, is, this is what we'll do. It's not just about postponing the inevitable. It's well, you can't postpone the inevitable. Not forever. Well, well you can. I'll take that back. You can postpone the inevitable. Um, but, but it's still inevitable. But it's still inevitable, yes. Now, if I, if you and I can have a, a negotiated, a, an agreed path for treatment such that the inevitable is postponed. For example, I lived in New Zealand and uh, there were a lot of people whose family members were on the other side of the world and you invited them to come along. Uh, you, you, you said, well, they're arriving on the plane uh, in 48 hours. And so you did everything possible to now enable the, the death to be composed, to be freed of the loneliness or the lack of reconciliation, all these things that were needful for a completed life. We've talked about how it's maybe difficult for individuals, it's difficult for families, and it's difficult for doctors too. And I think one of the things that's happened that I've seen is this battle terminology has crept into the discussion about critical and terminal illness and 
that people are, are fighting illness and doctors are battling a disease and I really don't think that's helpful. What, what well, do you yes. think? There are two dimensions to that. First of all, there's the heroic desire within us as clinicians. And specifically, in you know, there's some heroic surgery or heroism breaks out when you have a resuscitation. And, and there, is a, there is undoubtedly, I mean, let's be honest, there's undoubtedly a great satisfaction in rescuing and saving somebody's life. Absolutely, yeah. I've done it, you've done it. Yeah. And... You think, well, that was a job well done. And your own self-esteem gets propped up by that sort of event. And it panders to our our sense of importance and the sense of our own value. Yes. But to take that pandering and make it a uni- apply it universally, make heroic interventions, the, the sort of at the pinnacle of medical care is a mistake because the heroic doesn't always work. Now, the heroic out there in the public domain is usually uh, highlighted by the press and we get a language associated with it and you've mentioned the word battles and I mean you'll recall and I recall because we've discussed it when David Bowie died That's right, the language that was used to describe his battle with yes. cancer well let me tell you the it's just it, we're setting ourselves up for such um, disappointment it's trying to deliver the undeliverable, perhaps. Well, it or... may be deliverable. I'm not saying... I mean, there's certainly a struggle in dealing with cancer. Mm. If you have to go through radiotherapy or chemotherapy or surgery, the patient and their family will struggle. And, you know, enormous burdens involved in yes. that experience. Yes. Yeah. We've talked about that um, bit of research that Macmillan Cancer Care did last year when they surveyed patients who had cancer about this mm-hmm. battle terminology, and, the, and many of the responses were reflecting that this notion of fighting and battling all the time was very burdensome well yes i mean what happens if you fail i mean i think of in the lung cancer sphere if you have a a type of cancer known as a small cell cancer well the prognosis with that is as bad as some leukemias and it's very difficult to get um, control of the disease process for patients who have small cell lung cancer and when you're recognizing the the trend towards the patient's death but still in inviting them or encouraging them to battle against it as if it, the battle can be won, then you've set the patient up for for a hugely problematic experience as death approaches. Yeah, you, you mentioned there about uh, trajectories and about people being on an end-of-life trajectory. Could you maybe just explain that a wee bit more for us? Yes, well, over the last 60 years, life expectancy in Western societies has gone up and up and up. It's actually not going up anymore. But... When I was a medical student, a male life expectancy was 71, and now it's 79, and female was 72, and now it's 82. And that means that the whole pattern of disease is shifting. And about 85% of people who die of long-term conditions like chronic bronchitis and emphysema, or chronic kidney disease, or chronic heart failure, they die... Not in an instant, but over a period of 8, 12, 14, 16 months. And there's a process involved in dying. And that's what we mean by an illness trajectory. Right. And that's we, we ought to be trained, all of us, to recognise that. Uh-huh. Because that's a helpful way into providing appropriate care. Uh-huh. And what happens if we don't recognise that trajectory? What are the problems if we don't pick up on that? Well, the problem is that we still think that when they're 
there's an acute deterioration. Let me give you an example to answer your question. Um, if we deal with the condition known as COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, emphysema, chronic bronchitis, or a mix, um, patients with COPD in the last year of life might come into hospital with a chest infection and they need oxygen and so on. And that's turned around after five or seven days. And then that may, they get back out, but the quality of life is never the same as it was before they came into hospital. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that might happen two, three, four times over. And every time they go in, if the expectation is that, yes, I'm going to treat with antibiotics and steroids and, and oxygen, get the patient back out there to resume life as normal, we are ignoring that trajectory. That's it, yes. That bit by bit by bit, the patient's losing ground. And of course, it means that every time the patient comes into hospital, we do the same things with the same expectations, yeah. ignoring the fact that the trend is towards the end of life and their end-of-life experience is being ignored because the, 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 some of the supportive treatments are being neglected. So it, it, it isn't just a downward trajectory. I guess when you do have those patients in your care and you get them better and you get them out of hospital again, they're not necessarily as good when they get out of hospital as they were when they went in. It's quite difficult, particularly for people in their 80s, to have a significant illness requiring hospital admission, whether it's heart failure or respiratory failure or kidney failure, it's very difficult for them to recover to the point where their health is restored to what it was before that acute change took place. Um, that's just the way it is, mm. because you have a, you have a, a body that's, <laughs> that's biologically declining, and your capacity to respond to illness in the, at the age of 85 is not nearly as robust as it was when you were 45 or 55. It's a, a difficult thing to, to grapple with, but that's a, that's a certainty. It's a fact, nonetheless. Uh, I guess if we appreciate that, that trajectory, then we're maybe less likely to be shocked and surprised when, when the end of life does come about. Mm. Well, people are still shocked because... The, the, here we're back to the issue of denial. Because mm-hmm. the conversation maybe hasn't happened about that trajectory. Well, there isn't a recognition that the, the trajectory is established and is heading somewhere. I see. And one of the most uh, helpful things that is done for people who are on the trajectory is things like physiotherapy and occupational therapy and making sure that they have supports in place at home. And that's the service that we provide is critically important to their quality of life and their well-being. But it should also be combined with the knowledge that the individual concerned may be, may be not necessarily, but may be on that trajectory. Now, sometimes you get a 90-year-old who is vigorously out walking the dog, you know, half a mile every morning, and they're, on, they're not on a trajectory at all. It's yes. not about age. This yes. is not about yes, age. Yeah, important to make that point clear. Very, yeah. very important to say, this is not about age. Mm-hmm. It's about... A biological process is, which is unfolding and which may be pushed in a with in a hastened by the advent of an acute illness. I think one of the most useful analogies you've used to, to, to help understand this in the past is the autumn leaves. Could you maybe just tell us a little bit about the autumn leaves analogy? Oh, that you yes. Well, we gaze out of our lounge windows in October, and we can certainly where I live in on the banks of the water of Leith in Edinburgh you can have wonderful colours in that at that time of year um, if you get to Christmas Day there's not a leaf to be seen 
they have all fallen. So there's two things we're observing here in the natural biological world. One is the certainty that all leaves are going to die. And the uncertainty of knowing whether that's going to happen in the middle of November or at the end of November or at the beginning of December. So in the same way as leaves change their colour and fall, but there's some uncertainty associated with it as to its end point. So human lives, the biology of human beings, eh, particularly now in that 85% who have it on a trajectory, we have the certainty that that life is going to end, but with the uncertainty of knowing Mm -hmm. when that might be. And the, the, the problem is we cling on, we hide behind uncertainty. We cling on and we say, well, they're good for a few months yet or they're good for a few weeks yet we say that into ourselves and therefore we do everything in the same manner as if they were perfectly healthy and not on the trajectory I think it's a really helpful way to to help us try and get a a grasp of uncertainty and the the problems that that throws up Um, we talked a little bit about the discomfort of uncertainty in medicine could you share your thoughts on that? well none of us likes uncertainty I mean, I make plans for my holiday and if I go on the online to EasyJet, at the same time they'll offer me a car hire and a hotel and insurance, you know. And all these things are made th- are, are set to make sure that when I step off the plane in Tenerife or wherever, everything's cut and dried and organised. Um, it's very interesting that although we love uncertainty, uh, we don't like it when it comes to our mortality. Uh, people plan for their summer holidays. They even plan for what happens after they die. They have a will, they have a funeral plan, but they don't make... The, the certainty of their own mortality doesn't govern their decision-making. And that's that's where we've got to. And, and that's one of the things we need to change, just by talking about mortality. Okay, so we've talked about there's individual reasons for, for the death taboo. There's perhaps family reasons as well, society reasons, uh, and, and medical reasons, the medical profession too. Let's talk about those maybe individually. Uh, what, can, what can each individual person do to try and address and maybe break down that death taboo? I think at the core of things is this notion that we allow reconciliation to hum- to being mortal, our own personal internal reconciliation to being mortal, to giving it more space. Um, if I give you an example, I have good friends whose father died just this week, aged 95, and they visited him during the last few days of his life, in fact, during the last few months of his life, and he was perfectly alert and aware of his circumstances and said, I'm ready to die. I'm ready to go. I want to go soon. Now you say, well, okay, at 95, that's a jolly good place to arrive at. Now, not all of us get to that age, but the thinking of that man, I think, if it was something that was shared more widely and not just 95-year-olds or 92-year-olds who've been in a care home or who are frail and disabled. I think he's had lots of time to think about it. And you say, well, fair enough, he's had lots of time to think about it. But I think his example is one that could be more widely applied. I think that would be very helpful. Yeah. So there, there's that idea of reconciliation to the inevitability that we're all going to die and that I, as a person, am going to die. Yes. And then... Not just that reconciliation, but then talking about it, making yes. you, your loved ones, your nearest and dearest, know that you've yes. come to that. And in the, in the case I gave you, the case example I gave you, 
this gentleman had a fall and was found to have a, a cancer somewhere with um, uh, deposits of cancer in his bones. Mm-hmm. And that was what caused the, a fracture when he fell. Now, the, the fracture was, was patched together, but together with this gentleman, the family agreed that there were to be no investigations of where the primary cancer was. And that was very wise. Lying in a hospital bed having CT scans and biopsies was not for a man aged 95 who said, I'm at the end of my life. Um, so there is an application of the thinking which has got very pragmatic and important mm-hmm. consequences. Yeah. So having that realistic conversation, that honesty, that clarity, uh, is really going to help break down the taboo. It breaks down the taboo. It doesn't sort out all the issues. So like, there's, no, there's no easy way into this because it involves human suffering it does involve uncertainty it involves a great tension because you want to do what is best and the wisdom to know what is best is sometimes only arrived at with careful thought over a period of time but at least if we were thinking these thoughts mm-hmm. I think we'd yeah. all be in a better yeah. place so the starting point really is, is the thinking the reconciliation yes. the realism okay well, we talked then about how society could perhaps help in the, the, the fighting and the battle terminology. I mean, we, how can we get society to, to move away from, from, from this terminology? Is it just something that we need to, to keep going on about, we need to, to keep chipping away at? Well, the, I mean, I think the societal problem has moved forward into, into the consequences of having a taboo, and that's the blame culture when people die. Mm-hmm. Somebody's fault. It can be somebody's fault. Um, the politicians are, are uh, who is particularly if they've got responsibility for healthcare, they just tremble at having to deal with hospital mortality. For example, we all go back a few years to the Francis report about um, Mid Stafford, I think it was, mm-hmm. um, and how there were three hundred or something similar recommendations mm-hmm. as to where things could have been better. Now, I think. Avoidable deaths should be tackled by hospitals, don't get me wrong. But to lump together all mortality and tar it with the same brush is a consequence of the taboo, it's a consequence of not talking mortality in a realistic and meaningful way. Mm-hmm. And um, societally, I think we need to be a lot more selective about when we, we point the finger mm-hmm. or find something wrong with the system. Sure. Because it's demoralising, it's demoralising mm-hmm. and it's futile. And we'll always be up against it because mortality is universal. Um, and that's nothing to do with standards of care. <laughs> it's to do with the philosophy of how you approach the delivery of health care. Yeah. yeah, so there's conversations that need to be had wider in, in yes. society too. And application. And application, yeah, for sure. Um, so we talked then as well about how the medical profession can perhaps help by maybe not having this fix-it approach all the time. What else can, can you and I, as doctors, do perhaps to, to make this better? Well, there's a, there's a sort of intuitive addiction, well, I call it by that strong word, to what I call last chance medicine. We've tried this and we've tried that. Well, we'll try again with something else. Yeah, we see that all the time. We see we? that all the time. Um, and that's unhelpful if, we, if in pursuing a third and fourth attempt at... Um, maintaining a patient's life or achieving survival or achieving cure if by doing so we are a inflicting harm and suffering more than 
we're achieving benefit. That's that's to be honest, that's a professional ethical issue. You know, one of the platforms upon which medicine ought to be practiced is first do no harm. Absolutely, yeah. And first do no harm has actually been pushed a little bit to the side in trying to achieve a last chance. Um, the last chances at at, at um, survival. I think if we started just with the issue of harms reduction, that would help us all. Um, am I going to, by pursuing survival, inflict harm? And am I going to achieve? Is it, ever, is it even possible I might achieve survival? Or am I just doing so because I can't face the prospect of my patient dying? And that's the failure issue. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Well, listen, Robin, I think that's been really useful to, to think about those individual, family, society and medical aspects to try and break down that taboo. I think it's been really helpful to, to go over that. Okay, Robin, so I, th- I think we'll, we'll bring it to a close there. I just want to thank you for your for your time this morning and your expertise in shedding some light on this uh, challenging and difficult subject. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Okay, so let's spend a moment going over what we've been exploring about the death taboo. That notion that we as individuals, as a society, we we find it difficult and uncomfortable to talk about death and dying. It's a relatively new phenomenon, evolving in the past century in the wake of mass bereavement events and as medical technology advanced to the point where death-defying has become death-denying. We all have an innate, natural survival instinct and a base fear of dying. That fear can be expressed by families too, with a collective clinging on to life that can sometimes make it so difficult to let go at the end. As individuals, we can start to address this taboo by talking more openly, honestly and realistically about death, reconciling that at some point death will be for me and not just for somebody else. Making plans and making your wishes known to your loved ones will help reduce some of the fear. Society can help if we can move away from all the battling and fighting terminology that we see in the media. It really does put a burden on some people living with terminal illness. We don't die because we have failed or lost a battle. We all die at some point as a conclusion to our life. The medical profession needs to perhaps refocus on the ethical principle of first do no harm. When cure is at all possible, we should of course pursue it with all vigour. But when death is approaching, as it inevitably will at some point for our patients, we must ensure that our efforts do not result in futile, albeit well-intended interventions that can result in harm. To quote Rob George, a professor of palliative care, Wasting a dying person's remaining time is wrong. Such wise words, and ones which the entire medical profession could do with hearing afresh. You've been listening to the Talking Mortality podcast with me, Calvin Lightbody. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this, and if if you'd like to leave a review for the podcast, that would be great. If you'd like to get in touch with any comments or questions on Twitter, I'm at CJBlue72 underscore and Robin Taylor is at RT Lungs. Thank you and good day.